So welcome everybody. And I wanted to say thank you to Ross. He'll be our tech host tonight. So we're going to spend three evenings uh, thinking and talking about Dogen's eight awakenings of great beings, Hachi Dainin Gaku. This was his last teaching in 1253. And it was also the last teaching of Buddha. And it was intended to complete a hundred fascicle Shobogenzo. But Dogen only made it through, I think this one is 95. While I was preparing for these classes, I learned that this last teaching of Dogen's is often apparently given at the bedside of those who are dying in Japan. I thought that was really interesting and kind of um, inspiring. My feeling is that this teaching coming at the end of Dogen's life is really it's a succinct and approachable teaching. He wants us to consider the possibility we all have, you know, to be free from limits that we impose on our thoughts and our behavior. He wants us to understand this is available to us all, no matter who we are, or even who we think we are. So I kind of see it as his practical advice about how to live our lives as you know, ordinary human beings. So I sent you five translations, but it's not really necessary to read them all unless you want to. I wanted to point out the differences in the word that's used, uh, eight awakenings, eight truths, eight realizations, eight awarenesses. Uh, I even read a translation that read the eight awarenesses of adults, how to be a, an adult that's waking up, growing up, you know, awakening to original nature. In other words, I think it's like being able to say to ourselves, this very being is Buddha, you know, not in a puffed up way, but as a way to take our path as Zen students seriously. I like the word awakening myself. I'll probably use that more, although I'll try to use some of the other ones. I like that word because it feels like there's some movement or action or activity in it. You may like one of the others more. Um, whatever words get at the meaning for each of us and helps us to relate to it, um, you know, that's a good thing. So I want to say something about the title, and then I'll go on to the first awakening, and I'll stop after that for your comments or insights or sharing or questions, whatever you might want to say. So we'll stop after, after I talk a bit about the first awakening, and then we'll go to number two, and then we'll have time again for more discussion. And I'm really interested in how people relate to these, you know, how we all view the purpose of them in our life, or um, how we might practice with them, how we do practice with them, how we're aware of them, 
now that we're studying them in our daily life and also in our uh, Zen training. Next week, we'll do the, the middle three, and then on the final week, we'll do the last three. So in the title, there's the word great. Eight awakenings of great beings or great humans. It might be easy to read that title and think, oh, that's not me, that Dogen is talking about other people or people we might become, actually, but not us. We could read through, I think, the entire fascicle with that as a kind of undercurrent that he's talking about someone other than us. And I want to encourage us all to really drop that idea tonight and embrace that he means us. He's talking to us about us. And my feeling is that that has to do with what he means by the word great, not like famous or remarkable or amazing, because that way of thinking about great pushes it away from who we are right here, right now. So my feeling is that great here connects more to our viewpoint which in our practice, if we're willing, is always expanding. You know, that our viewpoint has the possibility of being limitless. Not that it is always, but that there's always that possibility for us to touch. The root M-A-G-N, Magn, in some English words like magnanimous um, means great. And it's also in the word magnify. And magnify is about making something bigger, right? Expanding, seeing something by expanding it. So we can use that image of a magnifying glass to remember that that's what we're doing in Zen practice. We're expanding the view of the small self by experiencing the, the lens, you could say, of big mind that's widening our view. So you could think about that image. Dogen doesn't say eight awakenings of good human beings. Good is okay, but what does he mean by great? Well, my feeling is he's tying great to his encouragement to practice fully all of the things that Zen practice trains us to do, to step outside of our cultural comfort zones, you know, to make a wholehearted effort in each activity that we meet, to practice doing one thing at a time. You know, in this world that we live in that's full of multitasking, to practice and trust the value of repetition, to practice doing what we do with care, you know, and attention, even though we make mistakes and keep making mistakes, to practice giving and receiving correction, to keep an even pace and not be in a, in a hurry, and to return again and again to Zazen. So Sojin Roshi passed 
on this kind of training to us, right? And we all practice this way. To my mind, this is being a great human being, and this is us. Ron, could you wait until we get a flip a bit further on? So Uchiyama Roshi says that the word dainin in hachi dainin gaku means true adult or bodhisattva. And he says, you know, so many people grow up to be adults, but they never mature spiritually to adulthood. So they don't behave as adults in their lives. And he says that the bodhisattva is the one who sees the world through adult eyes and whose actions are the actions of a true adult. So hachi meaning eight and dainan meaning true adult and gaku meaning something like study of or learning about. So something like eight ways of studying about or learning about being the true adults who we are. So I'm going to read you the eight awakenings and then go right into the first one. The first one is having few desires. The second one is knowing how much is enough or being satisfied. The third one is enjoying tranquility. Number four, exerting diligent effort. Number five, not neglecting mindfulness. Number six, practicing samadhi. Number seven, cultivating wisdom. And number eight, not indulging in idle chatter. So Dogen starts with the first, with a little preface. He says, all Buddhas are great beings. What great beings practice is called the eight awakenings. Practicing these awakenings is the basis for nirvana. This is the last teaching of our original teacher, Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha, which he gave on the night he entered Paranirvana. So... We great beings, we're practicing these awakenings as kind of the basis, he says, or the core or the heart of nirvana. And uh, Sojin Roshi used to say that nirvana is just simply the natural order of mind that's present when we let go of obstructions, when we let go of hindrances of greed, ill will, and delusion. And in fact, he, I heard him say that the literal meaning of nirvana is to uproot. And I kind of like that word. I, I just moved this plant in my garden here at our home. And I rather carefully uprooted it because it wasn't happy in that spot. And I moved it to another place in the garden where it may have a better life, where I hope it'll thrive with more sunlight and more space. So nirvana may be something like that, uprooting obstacles that hinder us, moving them to their proper place and relationship in our life. 
you know, by practicing these awarenesses. So the first awareness, the first awakening is to have few desires to re sorry, the first awakening is to have few desires. Know that people who have many desires intensely seek for fame and gain. Therefore, they suffer a great deal. Those who have few desires do not seek for fame and gain and are free from them. So they are without troubles. Having few desires is itself worthwhile. It's even more so as it creates various merits. Those who have few desires need not flatter to gain others' favor. Those who have few desires are not pulled by their senses. They have a serene mind and do not worry because they're satisfied with what they have and do not lack, do not have a sense of lack. Those who have few desires experience nirvana. This is called few desires. In the Nirman translation, he says that having little desire as not going after things that we already haven't already experienced. So sometimes we think that what we don't have or haven't done is better than what we have or haven't done. But Dogen says, look at what we have. Do I need more? And what exactly is more? What's our experience of feeling that we don't lack anything we need? To be without that feeling that something is missing. What is it that's missing? One time when I was assisting some new cooks in the kitchen every day during a five-day sashin, people kept coming in and whispering to me that they were sorry that I was missing time in the zendo. But I didn't really know what I was missing. I was practicing in the kitchen. You know, the experience was full. But after several people came in and asked me the same question, I wondered, what am I missing? Am I missing something? So when it came time for the Shuso ceremony, I asked the Shuso, what had I missed by being in the kitchen for five days? And the Shuso promptly and wisely answered, you didn't miss a thing. You know, I think a real beauty of Zen practice is that it teaches us to apply ourselves to each situation one by one. And a full life experience is right there, nothing missing. We all have that experience in Zen practice. So having few desires is really the central teaching of Buddha, you know, that we suffer because of our endless desires. And so Dogen says the way to meet that is to limit our desires. I heard desire characterized as a, a fever of unsatisfied longing, you know, grabbing for something. We just have to have it, we think. And then we think that 
when we get what we want, we'll feel better or we'll feel good or we'll feel like we're in a better position or more peaceful or more like other people. But we know it doesn't really work that way. Getting something we desire can just lead to the next desire, more and more wanting or not even enjoying what we got. It's not that desire is a bad thing. It's not. We know it's human to have desires. And it's useful for us. And Dogen doesn't say having no desires. So how do we decide what few desires is all about? Uchiyama Roshi, Roshi describes what he calls literally opening the hand of thought. Perhaps some of you have read his book. He says, opening ourselves right up to what's happening right now. We make up illusions and then we get lost in what we just made up and we th what we think we desire. He says the only way to wake up is to literally open, you know, this hand of thought that it's the thoughts that are the source of our illusions about what we think we want. He says when we become aware and we just let things be, then the illusions that create those desires can disappear on their own. That's how he describes the way of awareness. So I want to read you a little bit of what of his words. The activities in our everyday lives are almost entirely the result of chasing after ideas, causing vivid lifelike images to become fixed in our mind and then giving more and more weight to these fixed desires until we finally get carried away by them. It would be even more accurate to say that ordinarily we're being flung about by desire without even knowing it. Almost all people in societies throughout the world today are carried away by desire. This is precisely why our zazen comes to have such a great significance. When we wake up during zazen, we are truly forced to experience the fact that all the things we develop in our thoughts vanish in an instant. Despite the fact that we almost always stress the content of our thoughts, when we wake up, we wake up to the reality of life and make this reality our center of gravity. Sojin Roshi says when we get that we get confused in Buddhism because we think that we have to cut off all desire in order to be free, but that's not quite right. So he uses the phrase wrongly placed desire. And he says that when we turn desire towards practice, it becomes intention. Then it's not so loaded with worry or fear or this feeling of missing something. We do have desires, but we can learn not to be pulled around by them. 
So I think Sashin is a great place to consider having few desires. We're given everything we need. You know, a seat, a schedule, food, drinks, rest, Zazen, Kenyan. And we're told to lower our eyes. This allows us to be right where we are. We're not looking around to see who we like or who we don't like or what new person is there. And looking around helps us to support. It supports limiting our desires. We can experience more clearly who we are. We keep returning to Zazen, to our breath and posture. We put our attention on this present moment. And when we forget to do that, we just return. So it's pretty simple and pretty hard to do continuously. Dogen says that those who have little desire do not seek for fame and gain. They're free from such, such troubles. To my mind, Sojin Roshi was a model, still is a good role model in this way. He had absolutely no interest in fame or gain. He did a lot to take care of the practice, to encourage us, to be available to us. He was really rooted in continuous practice. And he wasn't really influenced by what people thought about him. So he was steady and dependable and dedicated. He didn't lecture us to make us feel better. He didn't worry about whether or not we liked what he said. He was thinking kind of about the situation at hand, right? How he might attend to that. What might be needed. And he expressed himself in a way that was, well, wholehearted. He was firm, but he was fully himself. So the practice worked through him. And he paid attention to the practice, not to what it might bring him, some fame or gain. I never heard him say the words, my students. And he never really concerned himself about where or how to get students. So that's kind of like the total confidence of Zen practice in a person's life. I want to read you one line from something Trungpa Rinpoche says about desire. This is from a book called The Mishap Lineage. He says there's a difference between desiring to be more aware and being willing to be more aware. If you're just willing, it's very straightforward. But if you desire to be aware, if you're trying to be aware, if you're trying to reach some degree of reference point, that seems to be problematic. So Sojin Roshi was a teacher that understood the difference between desiring to be more aware 
and being willing to be more aware. The being willing, I think, really helped him kind of pare it down, get clear about having few desires, no interest in fame or gain. Suzuki Roshi says that the purpose of our practice is to be free, to free ourselves from ourself, from our small self, the small self that has so many desires. And he says that because of having so many desires, we limit ourselves, we restrict ourselves, but we go ahead and blame others or we blame a situation around us situations we don't like. So he tells the story of the famous Zen master Changsha. Maybe you know this story. Changsha was called Big Lion because he was apparently a powerful teacher. One day he went out of the monastery and he was strolling around the mountain. And when he came back, the monastic training leader asked him, where, where have you been? And he said, I've been strolling around the mountain. And Suzuki Roshi says that he's talking about his own practice. Strolling around means you have no particular intention of going to some special place. You see something and you want to find out something interesting, you'll go that way. You know, you'll pass many beautiful places. And when you want to come back, you might come back, but there's no particular purpose of walking. So he says the story means that we can enjoy our life free from desire. We don't have to be restricted by what we think we want. The mind can be free. That's why he said, I, I'm strolling around. Suzuki Roshi says we should not be caught by anything. And until we have that kind of, you know, strength or freedom, we should practice hard, practice really hard, not chase after worldly freedom, but find freedom from our small desires or from fame or from success in our regular, ordinary lives. So, you know, that's enough to keep us all busy for a long, long time, right? <laughs> so I think this is a good place to stop. And I'm, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm interested in your, your insights, your comments. You've read the translation. And certainly if you have questions, other people can also chime in. So Ross is going to call on people, and I think you can either raise your hand like this or your digital hand. And Ron, did you still have a question or a comment? You can unmute, Ron. Uh, yeah, I'd right at the very beginning when you said, uh, the, um, the, uh, what is a great one? I think that I read the title as meaning that someone who has actually had these eight realizations could be called a great one. That's how I read it. What uh -huh. do you think about that? 
I think that's a variation of what I said, isn't it? I mean, we are practicing with these realizations, and I think these realizations come up in every single one of us, uh, you know, even if it's just in a moment. And I don't think it's like that you get them all and then you reach a certain point. Do you? Uh, yeah, I think a realization is a realization. It, you don't just forget about it. You can have a little blip in your mind, but I wouldn't call that a realization. Maybe it's an opening. But a realization is you embody it. You take it in. It's yours. Don't you think we do that in Zen practice? I don't know what everybody does. Yeah, I think I see it. I, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying, but I don't see how different what you're saying is from, from me. Well, I'd have to go back. That's why I raised my hand, because your, yeah. your words were fresh. Um, can, Maybe other can, people have a feeling can, about that. Would Ron, would you go over that again? What it maybe a little more succinctly what you're saying versus what it sounds like Susan's saying? Well, I don't remember exactly what Susan said. So I can't, I don't want to say something that's this inaccurate about her. What I meant was well, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Say what gonna say maybe Susan. Can then. Yeah, 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 okay. But I think you should go ahead, Ron, just finish what you were going to say. Well, my feeling is that this title means that a great one is somebody who's had these eight realizations and not just as a blip, but as really, really realizing it and can, and can be it what they've realized. Yeah, I it doesn't mean it that. doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean it's perfect. But for the most part, they've actually had this kind of realization, and it's not just a blip and then goes away. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with what you're saying. I okay. think I'm saying basically the same thing. I don't see it as a blip, but okay. I do feel that in Zen practice we touch all of these places. And touch meaning, you know, deeply. We could in Zen practice, we could do that. But actually, if we do, is another question. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Ross, you had your hand up? Yes. Um, I have a question about Ron's uh, take on it, you about really embodying it and it's not being a blip. So if one is practicing great patience and they become impatient, where do the patients go? Uh, they they couldn't hold it anymore. Could they ever hold it? You said yeah, they really sure. have it. We yeah. I think people can change like that. That they can always have it. I don't know what people can always do. I just know myself. Well, my, my experience is that I, I've cultivated or have a sense of these awarenesses. And at times I feel there's an expression of that, but I am, will not say that I embody it and, and I have it. 
because I know that it changes so much. And so my question is, um, these people that Dogen and Shakyamuni Buddha are talking about, are they really different than you and me? I think they have a different level of awareness than I do. In that they are maybe aware that I'm not being patient now and I need to dial back? No, I no, just that they're just that more, they embody it more than I can. Could you say what that means? And that's my last question. What does it mean? Uh, they, they take it on, they take it on and are familiar with it in a closer way than I can be. You know, but that's just you analyzing yourself. But that's true. That's true. Right. So, yeah. so would, would that also mean from what you're saying, Ron, that they are always patient 100% of the no, time? No, no, I don't know what they are. I, I don't know what they always are. As opposed to the, the blips. And those are the, those of us who realize that we have patience and then sometimes we don't, but then we have it again. Is that, is that the blip that you mean? Can I, can I, isn't it a oh, lot like maturity Paolo, itself? Paolo, I see your hand. Let me, I, I want to try I, to, I uh, I'll, I'll call on you in just a second. Um, Ron, could you respond to Dean's question and then I'll, we'll put Paolo up. Dean, uh, say that. Dean, ask that again, please. Dean. So, when you're talking about someone embodying something as opposed to someone having a blip, yeah, right. for example, we have this sense of, I know what patience is, I understand patience, and I have it, but then yeah. for a moment, I don't. So, right. does that mean I'm not embodying it? I'm just having blips of it. And there, it sounds, if that's the case, that there's value in embodiment and maybe not as much value in a blip. And that's what I'm trying to, to sort of under, understand. I, I don't want to get around to measuring value. I don't want to measure it. All right, let's move on and let someone else um, comment. You. We've got Paolo has his hand up. Let's let Paolo yes. say something. Yes. Um, let's see. Um, and Paolo, thanks for your patience. Yeah, I apologize, guys. I didn't mean to. No, it's um, okay. We're all we're all we're all uh, here together. Nice. It's a great it's a great it's a great conversation, and and, and um, I just, I I just so appreciate it. Um, I've been hungry for for Dharma, and you know, it just it sounds like it 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 may be something like maturity itself. You know, a, a young person can already be showing the signs of maturity or know what maturity is, and you work towards it, and you have moments of greater maturity as opposed to lesser than. And then there's a certain point where you've become so mature that you, you just can't go. You, you might slide back and you might even have falls, but you'll, you, you can never quite go back to the same immaturity that you once had. Right. And I, I think maybe it's not an either or thing. It's not. I, I love the definition that Susan gave of great beings as being true adults. Um, so that 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 makes it human for us, right? I don't have to think about being a great being who will never have um, desires again in the way that Dogen and, and Shakyamuni Buddha didn't have desires, and and that allows me to to grow into the kind of maturity that maybe they've 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 achieved, and I can already consider myself a a, a true adult at least, if not a great being. 
And and it seems like in, in this lineage that a lot of the, the the most profound teachers and the ones have had, I think, the most influence maybe and or and haven't gotten in uh, trouble and, and all that good stuff seem like they're they're always emphasizing, oh yeah, you know, I've I might have had this realization or that one, but that doesn't matter. Um and and um from what I can tell, uh you know, um, Ryushin got me um, opening the hand of thought and seems like the, the, the teachers that are held in, in the greatest esteem are the ones who tend to de-emphasize Satori or these um, realizations that, yeah. Thank and, you. Thank you, Paolo. Um, Hannah, you're next. I, I think it's not particularly helpful to be grading and rating based on achievement, but this is a wonderful teaching. It's a guide. It's an aspiration, a reminder. It's a really helpful teaching to live with. Um, that's where I see it. Thank you. Philip. Um, you're on. Um, I, I always get stumbled by numbers. Um, and for there to be the eight awakenings, I mean, that that's curious to me. I don't know what that means. I mean, does that mean there are a lot of them and they narrow them down to eight or um, what is the order in which this is, this is emphasized. Does anybody have any, any yeah. idea? Um, you know, each one includes all the others. So they're like 64, but in order to talk about them, most people talk about, eight but you can jump into any one and include all the rest because they're interrelated and you know like the first one and the second one kind of pair nicely mm -hmm. desire and satisfaction which i'll get into i guess this is really rich and um i certainly don't mean to have the answers but the way i really look at this and the way i've been studying it i, I just have this feeling that we can't push it away from us. We can't exclude ourselves in it because we are practicing Zen. And, you know, practice is about focusing on the activity. And when we're one with the activity and we forget ourselves, that's a moment of enlightenment. And that's not somebody else, that's our experience. And we all have that in Zen. It's not a blip, it's an experience. And so I just, for myself, and you can disagree and that's just fine. I, for myself, I feel that um, he's talking to everyone and no matter where we are, we can jump into it and um, benefit from it. So I wanna go on to the second awakening and then we'll have, um, We'll have time for more discussion. So if you would mute yourselves.
Susan, would you like to take a one or two minute break um, as we used to do in the in the Zendo? Just to... I don't think so. Okay, very good. Thank you. People have a lot to say, so we can just use the time wisely. Of course, I'll leave that to you to, to be wise. I'm just... The second awakening is to know how much is enough. Even if you already have something, you set a limit for yourself for using it. So you should know how much is enough. If you want to be free from suffering, you should contemplate knowing how much is enough. By knowing it, you are in the place of enjoyment and peacefulness. If you know how much is enough, you're contented even when you sleep on the ground. If you don't know it, you're discontented even when you're in heaven. You can feel poor even if you have much wealth. You may be constantly pulled by the five sense desires and pitied by those who know how much is enough. This is called to know how much is enough. So how do we know when enough is enough? And what's the relationship between desire and satisfaction? Does satisfaction tend to be our experience when we don't pay too much attention to desire? So Dogen says, even if we already have something, we can set a limit for ourselves, And in that way, we'll come to know how much is enough. Limiting what we take to those things we already have available to us. That's an interesting statement. I've been thinking about that. Here's an example that came to my mind. You know, we live in a time when we can go to the local grocery store and buy fruits and vegetables from anywhere in the world. Um, you know, they're shipped here in no time. And as a result, not all modern folks know what foods are local anymore. So to go to the farmer's market or to have a garden is to kind of know about what's grown in our area in our particular season, the one we're presently in. And it's a way to limit ourselves to what's available locally. It's pretty hard to do that these days. You know, the temptation to buy what we want to buy, what we desire any time of the year, that can be strong. Still, it's not impossible. And it's a way to learn about where we are you know, to find certain satisfaction in that, eating with the seasons, looking forward to the next season's vegetables and fruits while we're content with what we have right now. So that's just something I've been thinking about. You know, there's that koan when you, um, when you meet the Buddha, kill him or kill her or kill them. Suzuki Roshi says that we should kill the Buddha if the Buddha exists somewhere else. Kill that Buddha, you know, and then come back to right here, this humanity right here. So in other words, we can stop looking outside of ourselves to find what we're looking for. And that that's how we can end our suffering. So what is our ability to be satisfied no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in? That can be really cha challenging. 
in zazen we see how often the mind's looking for something outside right to bring ease to bring us pleasure or to ease our pain right he says without being aware of it we try to change something other than ourselves order things outside of us so to kill the buddha is to let go of those outside things that we think will solve the problems we're facing and come back to satisfaction with this moment whether we like it or not when i started to sit sashins I thought I might be missing out on something that could be more enjoyable. I was comparing activities. At first, I had a really hard time putting down that thought, you know, that I was missing something else by deciding to sit a sashin. It was a kind of desire, you know, to want to have it all. I felt conflicted. I often asked Sojin Roshi how to pare it down. That's something I'll probably always work on. So what's at the bottom of this practice? You know, this practice is not just one of many things we can do in order to have an interesting life. I mean, we can practice that way, but it, we won't be able to penetrate the practice deeply to, you know, to discover the satisfaction that's there. If we think Zen practice is just another of many activities, a pastime. So slowly in practice, we have that experience of this is enough. We experience satisfaction. Maybe it comes from like a choice we make about how to practice when desire comes up. I want to read you this little quote. Sojin Roshi said, we are all in some ways victims of our wants and our excessive needs. As we practice Sazen over time, we have the opportunity to discover the joy of letting go. The effort we put into the practice is one with the satisfaction we experience. What better reward? Each moment of sincere effort is a moment of satisfaction. So he was, he always invited us to practice that way. I was thinking that our Oriyoki eating has a lot to teach us about what's enough. We have three bowls that are designed, you know, to help us practice with just the right amount, just enough to nourish us during sashin the cook pays attention to you know the right combinations of colors and textures and tastes there's a balance just enough right and we train in this kind of ritualist way of undoing the cloth setting out the bowls and the utensils how to hold them how to put them down how to arrange the cloths we do this with just enough attention we wash our bowls with just enough water. And we put everything back together again with just the right amount of attention, making no noise, you know, being careful. So while we're doing that, we 
forget about our sore knees. We forget about our back. We drop our thoughts and we just settle into eating, just eating. And through Orioki, we learn great appreciation, right? For the simplicity of it, the beauty of it, the quiet, the taste, the unity in the Zendo, all caring for the meal. We feel satisfied. Also in cooking practice, there's the opportunity to discover what's enough and what might be extra. So, you know, when I was practicing at the, as the Tenzo, Sojin Roshi always told me, tell the cooks we're not a restaurant. Tell them to plan simple meals, basic food. We're not trying to impress anyone. But, you know, it takes time to realize that and to experience the satisfaction in that. People want to make a mark, right? That desire to be noticed. When I first started cooking sashina, I used to run outside before lunch and gather up edible flowers to decorate the first bowl. Sojin told me they were lovely and they were extra. <laughs> One person I trained to cook insisted on baking bread from scratch for Sashin lunch. Both Sojin and I told the person that's not necessary, that's extra, but the person insisted. So we decided we had to let the person run it out. You know, the compulsion, the desire to be extra good, like me with the flowers. Sometime later, quite a bit later, that person came to me and said, you know, told me they realized why it wasn't necessary to bake bread for sashim. We're all learning to give our best effort, you know, with nothing extra. Basic, ordinary living, right? It brings us contentment. But we have to experience it to really understand it. That's what our practice is about. Suzuki Roshi says it this way. He says that usually when we do something, we want to achieve a, a result. And instead, he says, do it in a spirit of non-achievement. That's quite a phrase in our culture, isn't it? A spirit of non-achievement. But he says there'll be a good quality in it. Just do it without any particular effort is enough. And if we make a special effort to achieve something, then it leads to what he calls an excessive quality. Then there's some extra element there. And we should get rid of that excessive quality. And he says that's really important in helping us to locate ourselves in the middle way. And that the middle way is the place of enough. So that's another reason why when we cook for Sashin, we come into the Zendo and we do the cook's bows and we sit down and we keep our eyes lowered like everyone else. We don't look around to see if everybody likes the meal. We don't look around to see who's taking seconds, right? That's extra. 
And it's really kind of deadly because it takes us right away from what we're doing, which is eating. Dogen says we can be contented even if we sleep on the ground or discontented in heaven. So he's saying the circumstances don't determine whether or not we're content. He goes on to say that we can feel poor if we have wealth. Well, I think this is kind of tricky because it takes some money, some basic necessities to live. And we have a long way to go because clearly not everyone has those basics. And we have many examples of how money doesn't necessarily bring satisfaction. So, you know, the kind of imagined reality of the thoughts we create in the mind is not really reality. So what we think we need to be satisfied is often off the mark uh, thoughts, but not really reality. We see that in Zazen, and we see it perhaps more in long sashins. Dogen says the way to be satisfied is dwelling in no place, but where is that? What, how do we dwell in no fixed place? Pretty hard. But we know that. We do have experience with that, with experiencing satisfaction. We can come back to that having enough if we stay with breath and posture and we observe. Something falls away. We all have that experience. In one of the, um, I think I sent you a paragraph from Trungpa, and he says, facing obstacles we should add appreciation with some sense of what he calls rejoicing. He says, be content with what we have. Use it as a, a celebration and see how it simplifies your life. Watch how it simplifies your life. You know, and I started thinking, well, this can really help us to lighten up or help me to lighten up. When I had COVID in January, I was on semester break and I was about to go up to the mountains to ski for a few days. You know, I'd been planning this trip. I really wanted to go. And I thought about Trungpa's encouragement. So I thought, well, I'm going to try that on. So something like, how wonderful. I don't have to drive to the mountains. Isn't it nice? I could take a bath every day in the middle of the day. And I'm so lucky to have this chance to be quiet and stay in bed. You know, I repeated that to myself and I can't say that I believed it 100% at the personality level. But 
I was willing to try it at the practice level, you know, why not? And I'd like to keep trying to remember that. I don't know if I will, but I think it's great advice. So in Zen practice, we have the opportunity to experiment. You know, we can try something, we can omit something, we can add something, and then just watch. So we can observe how satisfaction appears or arises or unfolds or however you want to say it, how we become aware of it in relationship to those small desires. I want to read one last short paragraph. It's from Dogen's Instructions for the Cook, the Tenzo Kyokun. He says, a dish is not necessarily superior because you have it prepared with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. The many rivers which flow into the ocean become the one taste of the ocean. When they flow into the pure ocean of the Dharma, there is no such distinction as delicacies or plain food. There's just one taste, and it's the Buddha Dharma, the world itself as it is. In cultivating the germ of aspiration to live out the way, as well as in practicing the Dharma, Delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. Likewise, understand that a simple green has the power to become the practice of the Buddha, quite adequately nurturing the desire to live out the way. Never feel aversion toward plain ingredients. What is the desire to live out the way? And how do we nurture that desire? So I think that might be a good place to stop too and see what people have to say about enough, having enough. I think Miro has her hand up. Um, I see um, Ed, but yeah, I, I think Mira had her hand up first. Okay, let me uh, find her and. Uh... I'm here. Okay. I'm uh -huh. here. Um, my question is really basic. I was I was trying to understand um, for myself the difference between having few desires and being satisfied. I can't really see what the difference is. If you're satisfied, you don't have desire, so many, you don't have desires. And if so you for you, does one lead to having few desires? Does that lead to satisfaction or does it have a direction? 
Yeah, it seems if you have few desires, you're satisfied with what you have. Is that how you feel? So especially being satisfied, especially going in that direction, that being satisfied to me means you have few desires. How do, how do you discriminate between them in your mind? But is that your, I'm just asking you, is that your experience? Is that my experience? Say, say the question again. Is, it is that your experience that when you have, when your desire is limited, you feel more satisfied? Yes. Well, there you go. Yeah, so I, I think they're pretty much the same thing. But he made them into two things, so he must have some reason for thinking they're separate. Does anybody else have any way they see how they're different? Let's hear from Ed and maybe that'll come up. Uh, hi. Um, I was wondering about our or my uh, desire for the physical and mental health of my loved one. How does that um, fit in with this? Do you have a feeling for how that fits in with this? Well, no. I mean, I don't. I, it's something that I, I struggle with and, um, especially when, um, our loved one's health isn't what we want it to be. And, um, so maybe that's, that's about what suffering is, but it's still, I still have that desire for the well-being of my loved one. You know what, what other people might have something to say, what my response to that is that you're knowing you a little bit, your intentional effort to, um, to show that in your relationships, that that's a, that's what I what I was reading that Sojin was talking about turning desire towards practice through intention. And to me, that seems to be what you do, Ed. And so that kind of desire, isn't that a, a wholesome desire? Mm -hmm. It certainly doesn't appear to be connected to your ego. It's coming from the right. love of your heart. Okay, well, I guess that doesn't, um, it wasn't differentiated from what the, you said. I mean, I was, I heard all the stuff about desire, but I didn't hear that you, that there are um, uh, good desires, I guess, <laughs> or, or um, positive desires. When we turn desire towards, you could call it practice, but that's what we're doing, right? We're turning it towards a wholesome activity. Mm. Perhaps someone else wants to say more. Does that make sense? What I'm... 
other questions or comments? Uh, let's see. Mira, did you want to follow up? Please. I wanted to follow up on um, what Ed and Susan were saying. I was just listening to a talk uh, by Gil Fronsdale, and he was addressing the same thing about desire. And he definitely was saying that there, some desires are wholesome. And certainly the desire for the welfare of people, I and mean, that's what the Bodhisattva path is about, is desiring other people's welfare. So um, to me, that's a definite a good desire and and like Susan was saying he said we should have few desires so I think we have to dis, um, discriminate about desires and that's what Gil Fronsdale was saying too like desire to practice we all know that's a good desire and desire to help all beings we say that all the time and that includes your loved ones so that's a good desire Thank you, Mira. Yeah. Um, and Ed, let's see. Um, I was thinking about um, the first noble truth about desire and that desiring something that I don't have, whereas uh, being satisfied is satisfied with something that we do have. If we, uh, Soji used to say, want what you have, don't want what you don't have, or don't desire what you don't have. And that seems like a really simple adage. And they really come close together, almost like a gasho for me. And that there's a distinction, but it's kind of how do you look at them? Um, Ron, you are next. I was going to actually be in the same track as Mira was, that a bodhisattva is all about desire, desire to be helpful. So we talk about the bodhisattva ideal all the time. So uh, there are desires that maybe it's a matter of being self-centered or not. That a self-centered desire is a problem. But a, a, a desire that's um, centered on wanting to help somebody else genuinely not to make myself feel better but to help them and i suppose it helps me too and that i feel better helping them but uh it's not so self-centered hopefully it could be self-centered and kind of condescending but hopefully we'll still steer away from steer away from that so um i think there are wholesome desires and a bodhisattva is is a good example of that Thank you. Julianne. Um, so I, I think what occurs to me uh, about Ed's comment about uh, desiring uh, well-being for those we, we care for um, is we just need to acknowledge that we don't really have control. So we might you know, desire for the well-being of others, but we have to acknowledge that in the end, we may not get what we desire. <laughs> and it's really just um, something kind of profound that, that we have to accept 
Um, so that's just a thought that I had. Thank you. That's a good point. Uh, Carol Paul. Thank you. Uh, you know, the word that's coming up for me is craving. Uh, we talk about that craving is one of the poisons. And um, this is when our desires become craving. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that's maybe Dogen was kind of thinking about that. It, because we're going to have desires, but when we, and, but we have to sort of be able to touch them lightly because what I mean is when our families are not doing well or our friends are, you know, anything that's very personal to us, we have to be able to, you know, allow it, allow it to be the way it is, but still to have the, the desire, the intention for their well-being. Whereas craving, um, when we when we touch into that, uh, thinking that's desire, I think that's that's really the the ground where we have to be careful. It's not so easy. We got to have it. We got to have it. And so I'm thinking that's that's a difference. Thank you, uh, uh, Julianne. Do you have a follow up, perhaps? Um, I did. I, you know, something that occurred to me was also that sometimes we, um, you know, in this discussion about whether our desires are wholesome or unwholesome, we start to think about our desires as, as I, me, mine, you know, like, of course, it's, of course, it's a wholesome desire, because it's mine, you know, this is something that I want. So of course, it's justified. But um, I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, it just because it just because we feel that it's justifiable doesn't necessarily mean that that desire is a good thing. Other comments? It'd be great to hear something from everybody. There's Lynn and then Greg. Uh, let's see, Lynn. Uh, <clears throat> um, I don't know if this was you were reading or you were just paraphrasing, but this each moment of sincere practice is satisfaction. I find that very deep. And it goes to so much of this and what Ed said, because we don't know how it fits in at times, but to be able to be satisfied with our own sincerity of action, that seems to me to be, we have to be acting from that place. Uh, we, I, I thought that was very beautiful. So thank you. I don't know if that was from Dogen or from you. I think that was from Sojin, yeah. From Sojin. I think so. I think yeah. that's the one quote I read. I think you're right, yeah. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Uh, 
Greg Hertz. Hi, everyone. Um, I wanted to share, I really resonate with this uh, challenge of desire and satisfaction uh, personally. Like I'm, I feel like I'm always thinking about um, like what I could be experiencing that might be better. And that causes a lot of dissatisfaction and this distraction from what I'm actually experiencing. Um, I know it's a very basic point, but it just feels very uh, real to me. Thank you, Greg. I mean, uh, Susan, you're, it's actually, you're, you're leading the class. I feel a little funny. Yeah, you're doing the questions. I don't feel like I have to comment on everybody's comment. I mean, I really just feel that this is rich to, for people to speak. And so I if I have something you. to say, I will. But. As we know you, you will. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. Jim Herb. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, Susan, thank you uh, for introducing these first two awakenings. Uh, as we've talked this evening, I, I've thought of them kind of as simplicity and moderation. I'm, I'm sure we can think of other, other words we would use. But also moderation made me think of modesty. And I think when we talk about um, desires, good, you know, wholesome desires, unwholesome desires, even wholesome desires, I think, can become unwholesome when they are not in moderation. So because we become immodest and it becomes more about us than it becomes about the wholesomeness or the, the uh, compassion embedded in that desire. So that's all I had to say. Yeah, thank you. Um, Tim. Um, yeah, um, a lot of thoughts, but I guess just to add something here, um, what I was, I could resonate with the important desires. I have <clears throat> something going on right now with my second grade um, daughter, how she's doing in school and this and that. And I find that, and it's a wholesome desire to want her, you know, to do well, is it for me not to be consumed by the desire and not let my mind just go with it and desire I don't know how I can say this things down the road. You know, I want her to do well in her reading. I want her to do well with her grades. What type of person is she going to become? And all of a sudden my mind just goes, 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 goes. And so it's to try to have that desire just be in one spot and not just let my mind go. So anyway, that's what I was thinking. That's a good, a good phrase there, not to be consumed by it. I mean especially with our loved ones. I think that's a, a great challenge for all of us who are practicing. You know, there's this kind of way culturally that I feel like we're asked to like align ourselves with somebody when something's going on. But really the best thing we can do is, is to pause. I mean, you know, that's what we learn in Zazen is to breathe, right? Like the breath is really, really important. And it helps us not to be consumed. And it's really hard. So 
that's all we're doing is practicing with that, all of us in our individual life experiences, right? Whatever our edge is, that's how I feel. Susan, could you say a little more about aligning with the loved one and also maintaining one's own kind of alignment um, and how not to get lost on one side or the other? Well, why don't you say something? What do you think about that? Well, I'm not a parent, so uh, I have imaginings that we want uh, the best for our children. And if we have, as a parent, something that uh, we don't really know what they really want, we have, we have our own ideas. So that's a balance. Like with Sweetie Pea here, my cat, she lets me know what doesn't work for her, but it's a much simpler uh, cognitive exchange that we have than, uh, than Tim and his second grade daughter, I'm sure, and you and Lee Hong. So I don't really have much to say, but it's just kind of like, how do you not give up on your own sense point of view and all, and honor and listen to the other? What's Is there a particular tip or trick to um, that? Well, that's a great question. And I think we all, whether we're parents or not, whatever close relationships we have, right. Carrying that question around to me is more important than having an answer, actually, you know, and I don't mean to not answer your question. But you answered my question perfectly. That's that's exactly it. Keeping the question because I think the response will change moment by moment, depending on what's arising with our loved one. And and for me, you know, like with my daughter is just kind of keeping it real and not creating these scenarios in in my head down the road. I mean, sometimes it just goes and I'm thinking what's going on here. Second grade is going to affect her high school career, you know, and or maybe we're just going to figure out what to do in the coming months. And, and, and then nothing is really wrong. And so it's just kind of staying present in the moment to moment thing and not letting my mind just take these issues or two and run with it. Yeah, that was said perfectly. Thank you. We got Rondi's got her hand up. Yes. Um, and Rondi spotlight is so, um, let's see, there I am. So, um, thank you everyone for your comments. And, um, what's going through my mind is, I, I guess, Orioki brought it up and that is the, um, the practice of no preference, you know, which really applies, uh, I find to many situations. And of course, we all want the best for our loved ones. And um, it's hard, but it's really important sometimes to take the backward step and, and breathe. Um, we, want, we want to get in there and make, and quote, make it better. But as a number of people have said, you know, there's no guarantee that that's going to work. So it's really important to, be willing to to take a moment and take a backward step and um, hold the stories because we our imaginations can really run and we can come up with some fabulous stories which may or may not be helpful and then for ed what i wanted to say is is um um ed you know that the the way to go is meta. And of course, um, 
there's nurturing too, and all that um, means a lot. And um, you have a sense of how to go. You know, and thank you so much for that, Rondi. My feeling is that in what you're saying, when we take that backward step or we take that pause, that is a moment of satisfaction in ourselves as opposed right. to a, a moment of, you know, whatever you want to say, anxiety or, you know, what attention, whatever. So, and that that's good. It's not bad to feel satisfaction in the same situation where our loved one is not experiencing that. You know, we're in a better position to be on their side when we're experiencing that in our own self. Mm -hmm. Right, it gives, it gives, it creates a breathing space. And the, um, the other thing that comes up for me in practicing is the, um, the saying of having no preference. Um, and and that's that's what I think you were practicing with when you when you were using um, um, Trungpa's paradoxical instructions, <laughs> and it and it um, it seemed to work even if as you say you didn't believe it, but you know you were giving yourself these instructions and and doing these practices and um, and. It, it seemed to be soothing. <laughs> well, you know, I'm kind of a firm believer in we don't have to practice some, we don't have to wait until we believe something to practice it. Right, there, there is a saying, um, you know, fake it till you, you know, till you make it. I mean, the act of practicing itself builds something, right? Some muscle. And That's right. So that could be enough. Um, Thanks, we're almost at the end here. Maybe we could take one more. It's like, uh, it's like Lynn has her hand up. And there you go. I wanted to, to say that um, maybe some of you do know, but um, in Judaism, you know, a mensch is a true human being, and it's very aspirational uh, religion and practice. And I feel so is Buddhism. And I feel like these eight, it's remember it's eight or 108 or 1008, it's just aspirational it's to be in a fully, to be fully present, to be fully human, and to be a mensch, you know, to be truly fully human, good person, doing, walking beneficence into the world. Thank you, Lynn. It's a good note to uh, stop on. If you haven't registered for the class, it's fine that you showed up, but you should go on and register because that she has some ongoing list and that's how you'll get the materials. So um, uh, if you never got the translations of the fascicles, she'll send you that and the readings for this week, and she'll send you the readings for next week. So just go to the BZC site. And I want to say how, um, how much I appreciate all of you, you know, 
engaging and speaking and sharing your thoughts. And to me, this is just very rich and I have a lot to, to consider and to think about as I plan for, for the next class. But, um, thank you all for coming and don't forget to come back next week. Right, Sweet Pete? Right. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you, everyone.